So we've been in a series called Psalms for the Soul, and uh, Sean, when he asked me, said, just pick your favorite psalm or a psalm that's ministered to you. And uh, sometimes when somebody does that, uh, it can be paralyzing because, you know, you have so many options open to you. But uh, that was not the case this time. There's one psalm clearly the Lord has used in my heart more than any other over the last three years, four years, and it's Psalm 111. So we're going to be there today. Um, title of today's message is Encore, 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 because we're going to see through this psalm how great and worthy of praise that God is. So uh, I want to read it in its entirety. It's 10 verses, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll get started. So this is what it says, Psalm 111, verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He commanded his his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your grace toward us. I thank you that you can use broken vessels, empty vessels. Lord, I pray today that you would help me to be an empty vessel that would just allow you to flow through. Jesus, you know, apart from you, I'm full of pride and lust and vanity and selfishness and all kinds of things. So I pray this morning, Lord, that we would be emptied out, that we would hear your word. And I pray you would minister to our hearts. I pray that we would be encouraged by communally, corporately coming together to lift up your name. So I pray, Lord, help us to be free of distraction right now. Help our hearts to focus on you. And I pray we'll leave here, Lord, encouraged and enlightened in who you are. In your name, amen. So this year was is the 50th anniversary of the landing on the moon. And I feel like we did a pretty good job as a country remembering it. Uh, there were commercials about uh, moon landings. I think uh, Blue Moon Beer even had a special beer uh, in honor of the moon landing. Uh, there was a movie, The First Man, Um, I saw that movie this year, and then I read a book about going to the moon, and that really kind of opened uh, my mind and revolutionized how I thought about it, because I was born much later than the moon landing, Um, but the moon landing happened before I was born, and so I kind of have always taken it for granted that we wanted to go to the moon, so we figured out how to go to the moon, and we went, and we came back, but through kind of uh, watching that movie and then reading a book about just the the kind of 10-year span of what it took from the time that Kennedy issued the challenge in 1961 to us getting to the moon and how much work that took, it really helped me begin to understand 
that since the 50s, even into the 40s, people had been thinking about going to the moon and how we would get there. And it was only 70 years from the, from the flight of the Wright brothers to we, it was only about 70 years from that first flight to we landed on the moon, which is a pretty small amount of time, if you think about it. And so there were thousands, literally thousands of people working on trying to figure this idea out. Everything from the ideas about how we would get there to how the rockets would be designed to how many people to send. This is billions and billions of dollars. And this is in the 60s. So a billion, billion dollars is still a lot of money, but it's a lot more money in the 60s than it is now. So all of this time and effort is being spent on how to get to the moon because you have to, you have to get out of the Earth's gravity. They call it a gravity well. You have to get out of the Earth's gravity. You have to get into space. Then you have to go 250,000 miles to the moon. You have to separate two ships, one ship into two, land that ship on the moon. Then that ship has to get out of the, the moon's gravity, which is one-sixth of ours, so it's still pretty significant. So it has to get out of the, Earth's gra- or the moon's gravity. Then at thousands of miles an hour, these two ships have to rendezvous and dock back together and then fly 250,000 miles back to the Earth. So it's pretty amazing that we were able to figure out how to do all of that. But as amazing as that was, all we did was land on it. And, you know, a couple guys spent 22 hours there and then they, they left. We didn't create it. We didn't change its trajectory or its terrain. We didn't decide what the climate of the moon was going to be. All of that was done by God. All we did was land there and then come back. And that took us from creation until 1969 to figure that out. <laughs> And we're still probably 20 or 25 years away from going to Mars, they think. And all we'll do there is probably land and come back. We didn't create Mars. And if you look on uh, NASA's website, they actually estimate now that there might be as many as 2 trillion galaxies. They used to think it was 200 billion, but because of some more inspection by the Hubble telescope, they say now it's 2 trillion. I don't even know if that number is real. I think they just throw that on us and they know we would have no way to prove that it wasn't real. And so they just put out this big number. I'm sure it's more scientific than that, but how, I don't know how to argue with them and say it's one trillion and not two trillion. <clears throat> but this passage is going to remind us of God. If there are two trillion galaxies, God created that. And it talks about God looking at the universe and it's the span of his hand. So we have this idea of how big things are and how small we are. And so as I was going through this psalm, I'm going to do this a little bit differently than I normally do. We are going to go verse by verse. But as I kept reading this psalm, there are really five themes that stood out to me. And, and as you see them kind of consistently. So I'm going to give you the themes. Uh, and then as we go to each verse, I'll remind you of the themes that are kind of in that verse. So the first one is that God endures forever and his praise endures forever. And we see that in verses 1, 3, 5, 8, 9, and 10. That's a big theme. Uh, We see that God is righteous, gracious, and merciful. We see that in verses 2, 3, 4, 7, and 8. And then we are to remember who God is, meditate on who God is, what he's done, and what he will do. We see that at 1, 2, 3, 4, 9, and 10. And then God's ways are just, or precepts. That's a word we don't use a lot, but his ways are just, meaning all he does is is perfect and holy. We see that in 3, 7, and 8. And then in, uh, God provides for his people and he gives them a lasting inheritance. That's our ultimate hope. Uh, verses 5, 6, and 9. So 
let's move to verse 1. And I'm going to read the verse. We'll talk about the theme and then the things that are in the theme. So uh, this the psalm begins, praise the Lord. So it starts with a praise, a declaration of praise. We'll see in verse 10, his praise endures forever. So it kind of bookends this psalm. This psalm, by the way, in the uh, Hebrew original is an acrostic. So it's, it's uh, 22 lines that coordinate with the 22 letters of the alphabet. So we, we lose a little bit of that in English. But um, it's meant to be... Um, you know, an acrostic that praises God. So it starts with, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. So immediately, the psalmist begins with this connection between wanting to praise God and wanting to do it corporately. So he says, praise the Lord, but he's not talking about just in private. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Now, the word company there is a more intimate word, so it means a, a, a smaller, kind of close-knit um, group of the upright. The word congregation is meant to be used bigger. It's actually, the, uh, the, the word is similar to how um, to the word used referring to the people of Israel in the desert, in exile, so the, kind of the whole nation. So there's kind of this smaller, more intimate, David wants to give praise, but then he also wants to do it, you know, corporately and, and in a really big way. And if you've ever met anybody who's really passionate about something or, or really committed to something, then what flows out of them is praise. So I have um, <clears throat> two kids, eight and uh, 11. And when you have kids and you have, other, you have other peers that have kids, you end up eventually being around other people's kids' grandparents, okay? And if you've ever been around other people's kids' grandparents, they will drone on and on and on about how amazing their kids, their grandkids are, how advanced they are. Um, Robin and I joke that somehow not every adult is advanced, but every grandkid is advanced. They, but why? Because they love their grandkids, and everything their grandkids do is amazing to them. Or if you really love to read, or you know somebody who really loves to read, sometimes you know they want to talk about the, their favorite book they're reading or their favorite author. I work with a guy who loves biking. He's the only guy I've ever known in my whole life who actually watches the Tour de France. And not only does he watch the Tour de France, all 23 or 20, I don't even know how many days it is, it's long. And he will give us updates at work that none of us care about. He will tell us what's happening in the stages and who won. Why does he do that? Because he loves biking. So when we love things then and we're devoted to things, the natural outpouring of our heart is to want to give praise. And this is what Hebrews reminds us of. Um, in Hebrews 10.25, it talks about the benefit of coming together corporately. It says, and let us consider, 10.24 and 25, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day nearing. This is along the same lines of what David is saying here. He's saying, let us come together let us praise. Let us glorify God. He's worthy of it. And so let's do it together. We need to not only seek God individually, but we need to see, seek him corporately because there are going to be times where our own hearts, our own consciences lead us astray and we need other people who are praising and in love with God to speak into us. And so um, we don't want to miss out on the rich inheritance, part of which he's given us is each other in, in the body of Christ. So go on to verse 2. This is what it says. Great are the works of the Lord, 
studied by all who delight in them. And the two themes we see here, God is gracious, God is righteous, gracious, and merciful, and we are to remember and meditate on who God is, what he's done, and what he will do. So great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. So the idea is um, things that God has done are worth recounting. They're worth, they're worth studying in more detail, not just giving a, a, a surface pass look at. And so most of us have um, stories in our lives that kind of live on in infamy. So if you, um, probably in your family, there are things you've done or other people have done that tend to come up over time, right? If you're reminiscing about old times or if you're with friends and you're talking about something and a certain topic comes up, you have this great story that pops into your mind, right? We all, we all have these kind of things. So there's one story that um, often comes up about me when, when we're with other people and talking about things. And uh, I like to make fires. Not like that. Not like that. Well, not most of the time anyway. Uh, so I like to make fires, and we have a fire pit in our backyard. And uh, one of my favorite things to do is to uh, make a fire because um, I just like the challenge of getting it going. I like standing by it when it's cold. I like making s'mores with my kids. Uh, I'm always a little sad at the end of the night when I have to douse it with water and put the fire out. So um, it's one of those things that I, that I really enjoy. Well, one time we were, a few years ago, we had decided to make a fire, and we had a bunch of rain. And the wood um, that I have, I keep it outside. And so it was all soaked. It was all wet. And so I was working, trying to get this fire going. I was using paper. I was being very patient. I was trying to get airflow to the logs and get everything just right. Well, after about an hour, I got impatient because all I had was some tiny little embers. We were nowhere near a roaring fire. We were not going to be able to make s'mores. So I'd had enough. So I went and I got my gas can. And I took the lid off my gas can and I walked over to the fire very indignantly and kind of dumped it on the fire. Well, the tiny little embers burst into flames and shot fire into the gas can. So now I'm standing holding a can of gas with fire coming out of the, of the opening. And so, do you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, yes, I'm a real man. I am holding flaming gasoline, and I ripped off my shirt, and I drank the gasoline. That is how I like to remember it. There is another version that other people talk about, may not be quite as accurate, where I'm holding a can of flaming gasoline, a little pee comes out, I scream like a baby, and I'm picturing something like a fireball straight out of the Fast and the Furious, just an explosion, and then people are going to talk about how I was such an idiot when I died. So I run up to our garage, and I slam the gas can on the concrete right by our hose, Flaming gas shoots out all around me, so now I'm standing in a lake of flaming gasoline next to a can with an opening of flaming gasoline. So I turn on the water as fast as I can. I spray it in the can first because I'm still picturing the fireball. That goes out, so then I spray all the concrete around me. Finally, I'm standing there with just a running hose and no fire. And about 30 seconds later, Robin and the girls come out, which they think that we're going to make s'mores. And I'm standing there pale and panting and petrified and they asked what happened anyway they had to ask what happened because there's the smell of charred gasoline hanging heavy in the air the stench as soon as you walk outside our house it's the first thing you smell so it's not one of my finer moments now 
why did I tell his story other than to embarrass myself? It's because if I, who am a doofus and live under the curse of sin, have done things like that that are worthy to recount and talk about again, surely God, who's in control of the natural and the supernatural world and is perfect, is working in ways that are worth us recounting and bringing up and talking about with each other. And so that's what he's saying here. These, God's works are so great, they're worth dwelling on and meditating on and studying. They're full of splendor and majesty, which leads us to the next verse. Verse 3, full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. There's four, four of the five themes are in this verse. So God endures forever, and his praise endures forever. God is righteous, gracious, and merciful. So as, why are his works full of splendor and majesty? Because he is righteous, gracious, and merciful. We need to remember and meditate on who God is and what he's done, what he will do. And God's ways are just. So verse 2 told us that God's ways are great. And why are they great? Because they're full of splendor and majesty. And so it's easy for us sometimes to only get locked in on what's in front of us, what we can see. And I thought um, a few weeks ago, Pastor Sean and Pastor Travis both preached sermons on Ephesians 6. And I thought they did a great job of helping us remember that there's an unseen world where Satan is working for our destruction, but God and Christ is working for our good and our redemption. And Satan and sin have been defeated. And so it's easy for us to, to ignore sometimes or forget about the spiritual world. And that's a dangerous place to be because God has done a lot of amazing things. And that's actually one of the main reasons where the communists got off track is they, they said there was only matter and that there was no supernatural, that there was no God. And some governments even, some communist governments even said God, the government was God. And so that led to the dehumanization of people and through the 20th century, more than 100 million, depending on the estimate, maybe much more than 100 million people died under these regimes, which didn't acknowledge God and only believed that there was matter. And so it's a dangerous place for us when we forget that he's full of splendor, he's full of majesty, that he works in this supernatural um, world as well as our natural world. So I took some time as I was thinking about this verse, because um, this verse really has really impacted me. Um, to just recount some of the things that God has done in my life and in scripture. And it didn't take me long to put this list together, and I could have gone on and on and on, but I wanted to talk about some of the other verses. So um, I'm going to just read this list, and I tried to make it rhyme, so hopefully it's a little easier to follow. So this is a recounting, a brief recounting of some of God's great works. He created the world from speaking out his imagination. He never has any sin or need or sinful inclination. He created the universe, which is estimated to have more than two trillion galaxies. He continues to create people, animals, food, and trees. He parted the Red Sea. He saved his people Israel from slavery. He made the walls of Jericho fall. He blinded Saul, then made him Paul. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. He reaches into the hearts of sinners and calls them home. He kept his promise to Israel, even though they always ran away. He does the same for sinners today. Even though we are prone to wander and leave the God we love, Jesus still came down from up above. He helped David kill the Philistine, shut the mouths of lions for Daniel, and kept 
for Daniel and kept him clean. Gives you and me breath every single moment. He is infinite beyond any mathematical exponent. He saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. Jesus died for our sins so he could save us and turn us. He moved Jonah from rebellion to obedience through being swallowed by a fish. Gave Solomon more wisdom than he could ever wish. My whole family was lost and headed toward hell. God reached down and from our eyes the scales fell. Made Moses and Stephen's face reflect his glory. Gave us the Bible so that we would know the true story. Opened the barren wombs of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, and Elizabeth. Walked on water and calmed storms, did Jesus of Nazareth. Provided redemption for Naomi and Ruth. Sent his prophets to remind us over and over of his truth. Healed countless blind, sick, lame, and the lady who constantly bled. He even raised people from the dead. Died a gruesome death for us on a cross to crush sin for eternity. When we believe in him, we are forever adopted into his family. Amen. Let's move on to verse (laughs) 4. So verse 4, we know his works are full of splendor and majesty, and he's caused them to be remembered. He's caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. So there's a connection here. The The two themes are God is righteous, gracious, and merciful. Explicitly says that. Um, we're to remember and meditate on who God is, what he's done, and what he will do. That one shows up a lot, um, as you probably already noticed. We're only four verses in. So this shows that who God is and what God does are inseparable. So he's caused his wondrous works to be remembered. He's gracious and merciful. So God is not a God of contradiction. He's a God of perfect harmony. He cannot say he's holy and righteous and then act in a way that's contradictory to that. James tells us that it's impossible for God to lie. He can't be tempted by sin. And so we deserve awful destruction, yet God is gracious and merciful, and so he brings us in to his family. And in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, I'm not going to read it, but it reminds us that we need to proclaim his death until he comes back. So he's given us exactly what we need. Mercy, because we deserve to be eternally separated from him. We deserve his punishment, his wrath, but he's given us mercy. He takes that away, but then he doesn't leave us isolated. He gives us his grace. He gives us what we don't deserve, which is to be adopted into his family. And so that's exactly what we see displayed in the cross. As we move on to verse five, um, I want to talk five and six together. So it says, he provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. So the themes that we see in these two verses are that God endures forever and his praise endures forever and God provides for his people and he gives them a lasting inheritance. So in verse 5 it says he provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. The point of what the, the, the psalmist is trying to say is God is going to provide for us. Now, he may not always provide at the level that we think is appropriate, but he's going to provide for us. And when our hearts are focused on things that are above, just as as Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, when our hearts are focused on things that are above, then the things that are in front of us that, that want to vie for our attention and want to get us distracted 
and fully have our attention fully on God, they become secondary. So it's, it's not unimportant that we have food or that we have shelter or that we have some of the things that we need. The point is, when we focus on those things, then we, we have an emptiness because we're missing what we're truly made for, which is, which is God. And so in Matthew 6, 21, 19 through 21, Jesus is telling us we need to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And he's not condemning wealth, but what he is condemning is the pursuit of only treasures that are here and, and not focusing on the real eternal truth. And so I'm going to just read Matthew 6, 25 through 33, because I think it helps illustrate when our hearts are in right alignment with God, then the things that we need don't consume us. And, and we're able to really put them in proper perspective. So this is what he says. This is Jesus talking. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat what you or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, which is today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So Jesus is telling us the same thing as the psalm here. God will provide for us. Again, maybe not always the way we want. If you look at Paul's life, he was in pretty dire straits. He was often hungry, he was shipwrecked, he was bitten by a snake, he was beaten. It's not that he had this charmed life that nothing bad ever happened to him, but his heart was so fixated on God and on the eternal kingdom that those things were seen as light and momentary. And so that's what the psalmist is trying to do, is to get our eyes off of what is in front of us all the time and what can dominate our thoughts and our attitudes so that we can have proper perspective perspective with who God is because that's who our hope is so verse 7 and 8 I want to do those together as well says the works of his hands are faithful and just all his precepts are trustworthy precepts is not a word we use often it's it's like his ways or um, his uh, uh, like um, maxims or uh, just you know the guidelines by how God does things so all his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. So the three themes that are in this one is that God endures forever and his praise endures forever. So we see that again. It says his precepts are established forever and ever. God is righteous, gracious, and merciful. So again, we see that with the uh, he's faithful, he's trustworthy, um, and his ways are just. So his ways are upright. If you look at the very end of 8, it talks about him being upright. So, again, God is a God of perfect harmony. He's not a God of contradiction. So he can't say he's perfect and then act in a way that goes against that. 
um, it says he's trustworthy. And I think this is really helpful for us in our postmodern culture because we want to exalt man or ourselves, women, above God. And the last 200 years have really benefited us in a lot of ways because there's been huge advancements in technology and science and research. And so it's helped us in some ways understand more amazing about how God is and how creation works. And it, it can help make our hearts soar, but it can also lead us to the temptation to where we trust in ourselves. And we feel like we understand so much that we exalt our reasoning above God's. And so we have to be careful because it's very common that we, in today's culture, want to um, challenge authority, want to question authority, and there are places for that. But it's also very common that if we can't make sense in our mind, then we either move God to being untrustworthy or unjust. And the scripture is telling us that God is infinite, and he is perfect, and he's immutable. Immutable means he cannot be changed. So his perfection is sealed for all time. His perfection can't be changed. We, are, we change. I've probably changed since I started preaching this sermon. We are fickle. Our, we live under the curse of sin, and we're finite. We don't have infinite knowledge. So we should expect that there will be things that we see and we don't understand, and we wonder where God is, and we wonder what he's doing. And that's okay to go to God with those things, but what we shouldn't do is exalt ourselves above God. C.S. Lewis wrote a whole book called God in the Dock, which is really good, where he basically goes through, and, and this was, um, he died in the 60s, so, I mean, I don't know exactly when he wrote the book, but this was well before where we are now. Um, kind of all of the arguments of how people drag God in and then accuse him of being unfaithful or unrighteous or untrustworthy. And so we've got to be careful. This is telling us here that God's, all his precepts are trustworthy, and he does everything with faithfulness and uprightness. And so when we have those moments where we're tempted to call God into question and to accuse him, we need to humbly come and submit that we don't know everything and ask him to instruct us. So verse 9, um, he sent redemption to his people. This, so this whole psalm is dripping of Jesus, but this is probably where it's most glaring. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome are his name. So the three themes in here is that God endures forever. His praise endures forever. We need to remember and meditate on who God is um, and what he's done and what he will do. And God provides for his people and gives them a lasting inheritance. So this points to Jesus. God is a redeeming God. All people, no matter ethnicity, gender, age, place in the world, all people need redemption. We all fall short of who God is. This was the whole point of why he even chose Israel. And he, he tells Abraham right in the beginning, I'm picking you, I'm going to make you a nation so that all people may know who I am and may experience redemption. This was his ultimate plan from the very beginning with them. And so no matter your circumstances, no matter my circumstances, in the end, we all need redemption. We all need to be able to make peace with God. And that's, he's telling us, we see that, he, he's telling us he's going to do it, and then we see him do it in the New Testament with the fulfillment of Jesus coming and crushing sin. Now, the very end of this verse, it says, holy and awesome is his name. And holy means he is set apart. He's different from us. That's why he's able to redeem us. If he were like us, 
the plan would fail, just like any of our plans would fail. Awesome, unfortunately, I feel like uh, it loses a little bit of its meaning in the English language. It probably didn't 50 years ago, but awesome is kind of overused now, and a lot of times it's associated with cheesiness. So when you hear the word awesome, you probably it probably doesn't land on you the way that it should. But if you look up the, the origin of the word, it means to be filled with awe. So to, to be kind of uh, in a sense where you're standing, you know, trying to understand what you're looking at. Your mouth is open. You need somebody to reach up and like close your chin because you're, you're so wonderstruck with what you're seeing that it overwhelms you. And I remember um, one of the most memorable sermons I've heard here at TCC was preached by Byron Glaspie. And it was probably the longest sermon, but that's not the point as to why I bring it up. Um, but it went so long, it went into the next service. And so, but he preached on hell. And one of the main points from that sermon, I don't remember it verbatim, again, it was long, but one of the main points from that sermon was that people in hell will be overwhelmed by God by, because of their separation from him. They will not, they will see him as righteous and worthy of their separation and their condemnation. We will be overwhelmed by God because of our uniting, being united with him, not our separation, but our redemption through Christ. And so that, that's always stuck with me that God's glory is so glorious that whether we're adopted into his family or separated from him, that his glory is going to overwhelm us all. It's just a matter of how is it going to overwhelm us, because of separation or because of redemption. And so when we, should we really begin to understand that, it helps our hearts. But it, it's like learning a foreign language. It's not what our natural hearts are bent to, as to want to understand how kind of wonder, wondrous and uh, awesome God is. So we have to immerse ourselves. That's why it's so important for us to rehearse and practice the gospel so that we don't forget all that God's done for us. All right, let's close with verse 10. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding, and his praise endures forever. So the two themes here, God endures forever and his praise endures forever, says it at the very end. And we need to remember who God is, meditate on who God is, what he's done and what he will do. Now, this fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If that sounds familiar, if you've read the Bible much, that phrase will sound familiar because it comes up in many books, especially in the Old Testament. So some of the more famous passages are Job 28, Proverbs 9 and 10, Proverbs 15, 33, Proverbs 1, 7, and Proverbs 2, 5. And this, this verse says the same thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when you hear the word fear, again, we can miss that sometimes in the English, like the word awesome. It's not, it's not fear like, when you're home at night and you're afraid somebody's in the closet, so you pull covers over your head, okay? Um, not that anybody does that. But if you did do that, uh, it, and it's not also a fear of like, you know, losing a loved one or fear of getting cancer, fear of, of losing your house or, you know, all of these other things that we fear. It's fear that is related to, um, again, kind of the sense of awe, that you see God and you're overwhelmed by who he is. You're kind of in this amazement that he's so holy and he's so different from you. And, and it, it sparks something inside of you. So one of the things that we like to do when we go on vacation is go hiking. Now we're not survivalists. We're hiking on trails that are usually well marked 
Uh, sometimes even with that, we still get lost. But um, with most trails that we've been on, when you go hiking in the mountains, there is a point in time in the trail where you kind of get to an opening and you can see a really amazing view, right? So maybe you can see mountains or, um, you know, you can see a river and trees or sometime a combination of that. And usually when our experience, my experience has been when that happens in our family, we kind of all just kind of naturally stop and then nobody really says anything. There's this kind of moment of silence. And it's not formal. I don't look at my kids and go, okay, kids, we're going to now observe a moment of silence. But you just kind of, you're hiking, you're tired, you're seeing the trail and the trees, and then you get this view. And it's, you know, mountains that are, you know, one on top of the other with trees and other just kind of beauty, and you just stop. And your soul just kind of stops and becomes peaceful. And you just kind of need a moment to internalize that beauty. And that's the same thing here, that when we have fear of the Lord, it's this kind of just needing to gaze at who he is and just internalize his beauty and let it transform us. That's one of the most amazing things about the gospel and our faith is you don't have to, like other faiths, do and earn your way to God. The way you get to God is just by faith in who he is and gazing at his beauty and letting that change and transform your soul. And so... That's the kind of fear that's being speak, spoken of here. And then the very end, his praise endures forever. Why does his praise endure forever? It's because we're going to be so overtaken with who God is. I don't know if you've ever been to a really good concert, a really good play, but you know, you go with expectations, and sometimes when you go, it's just amazing. It's way above what you expected, right? And, and you're just so moved, and everybody there is so moved. And so when it's over, what happens? I can tell you, I know what happens if you've had an experience like that. Everybody stands up. Everybody begins to clap. Everybody begins to yell, and you do it for a long time. And maybe you even yell for an encore for them, you know, to come back out on stage and do more. Why does that happen? It's because you've been so moved by the beauty of the performance that you've seen that you want to, you have to have an outlet for that. And so, you know, that's only happened probably a handful of times in my life. If it's happened to you, it may have happened for five minutes or 10 minutes or even 15 minutes, which is a long time to just stand and yell and, ch- and clap and cheer. But why do you do that? Because you've been so moved and you don't want the night to end. It's been such a good experience. You want it to keep going and you want to kind of all communally share in this uh, experience together. But at some point, it does end. It always ends. But it won't forever. That's what this is telling us. His praise will endure forever. And sometimes we have sadness when a special night ends. But we're going to have this deep fulfilling in our souls, and we won't be able to stop it. We're going to finally see God for who he is, and we're going to be moved by it for eternity and just want to give him praise and be satisfied. Let's pray.